I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And then our scripture for today, from John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd, Jesus, our Good Shepherd, starting in verse 1, chapter 10 of John. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Amen. Thank you, Al. Just keep it open to John 10. One door and only one. And yet its sides are two. Inside and outside. Which side are you? One door and only one. And yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? My daughter-in-law is starting to paint things, and she painted this for me last week. It's a door. And Jesus said, I am the door. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I wonder which side you're on. We'll find out. In the Middle East, uh, during the time of Christ, shepherds would make a sheepfold or a sheep pen, you know, out of rocks, perhaps a five to ten feet high uh, wall with an opening called the door or the gate. And historian describes the situation like this. As the night came on, the shepherd would stand just inside the opening of his fold and call his sheep. And as they came through the opening one by one, he would stop calling only when the last animal was safe inside the shelter. Then with the shepherd's crook, you know, his staff, and a rod, that's like a club, uh, beside him, he would lie down in the doorway and sleep with his own body across the opening. 
The gate to the sheepfold was therefore no ordinary device of wood or iron or rope. It was a living person. For one of the sheep to wander away or for an intruder to harm one of them, he would have to first pass over the body of the light, sleeping, yet attentive shepherd. So the shepherd and the door are one and the same. And as the door, the Lord gives us access into his fold, into his fellowship, into his abundant life. So in verses 1 to 5, Jesus gives us this word picture. Actually, he says it's a figure of speech in verse 6, which is unpacked in the rest of the chapter. He's using, of course, the imagery of a shepherd and his sheep, a very common image, a common scene, especially in ancient Near East, in very rural, agrarian society. Jesus takes various elements of this through the rest of the chapter, and then he expands on it. So in verses 7 to 10, he describes himself As the door. He says, I am the door. In some versions it might say, I am the gate. I am the gate of the sheep. And so the entry point is through Jesus, the gate. And then in verse 11 and following, he describes himself as the shepherd of the sheep. But today I want us to think about Jesus' declaration. I am the door. I am the gate. And then next Sunday we're going to look at I am the good shepherd. So this morning I want us to see some truths about Jesus as the door of the sheep or the gate of the sheep. And truth number one, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to God. I think this is one of the, the clear things that this passage is teaching us. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the door. So he's an entry point. And what is he an entry point to? He's an entry point to the fold. He's an entry point to the flock. He's an entry point into a relationship with the whole family of God. And so you might think of the church universal or the invisible body of Christ, which we're all a part of if we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. But we might think also of a relationship to God the Father. And Jesus says that he is that door. He is that gate. And this reminds us of the fact that The only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. Now, some of us who are in the church kind of take that for granted, but outside of the church, that is a pretty controversial claim. I mean, apply it to ourselves. We need to remember that it is through faith in Christ and Christ alone that we actually have relationship with God. Sometimes religious folks can begin to assume, you know, a relationship with God without a conscious, deliberate faith or trust in Christ. And so just note here that the gate is not a lot of things. (laughs) The gate is not baptism. The gate is not like observing the sacraments. The gate is not uh, just making a profession of faith in some kind of a public way. The gate is not just acceptance by the church. The gate is certainly not your good works or your good deeds. The gate is not your family. You're not born you know, into Christianity by being born into a Christian home. The gate is Christ himself. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the way to the Father. Now, that's, like I said before, that's a hugely controversial statement to make in a society such as ours, which is marked by what we call religious pluralism. It's one of the accepted beliefs of our culture that there are many, many paths to God, that there's a lot of different ways to come to God, and Jesus is one of the many good options. 
I mean, what should we say to that? I think the first thing to say is that, you know, if you take the scripture seriously, that's not an option, really, for Bible-believing Christians. The scriptures, I think, are crystal clear that Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Let me read a few scriptures and just let's let God speak for himself. John 14, 6. Uh, And you have yet another one of the great I am statements that we're going to cover later on. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. It could not be more clear than it is right there. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. We have a word from one of the apostles where it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. 1 John 5, uh, 11 and 12, we read these words. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. And then just one more from the gospel of John itself, John 3, 36. We have perhaps one of the strongest statements about the importance of faith in Christ and the consequence of not believing in Christ. The text says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So I hope you can see, I hope you can see from these passages that the Bible is really clear. There's only one way to God the Father. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to eternal life. There's only one way to a real, meaningful, lasting relationship with God, and that way is Jesus Christ. He's the door. He's the gate. He is the only way to the Father. But many people object. How can there be one way to God? How can you believe in a God that only gives one way? Well, Calvary, that's the thing that really amazes me. You say, what? That he even gives away. I mean, why should he give anyway, really? I mean, think of what he's done. The extent to which he has gone to redeem a fallen world through the ministry of Christ, whose life and person is not worthy to be compared to Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or anyone else. They are all dead. None of them made an atonement for sin. None of them bore the sins of the world before the judgment seat of God. And if God sent his only son, into the world to bear every sin that I've ever committed and he kills his son in my place and then says that if I put my trust in him that he's gonna give me everlasting life so that I will never die. Am I gonna look at him and say, you haven't done enough? Calvary, we are so arrogant to demand that God gives us like five different doors into the sheepfold and we reject Jesus' own teaching about the broad way. Matthew chapter 7. 13 and 14, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. And he continues, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Our culture has a big problem with the exclusivity of scripture. One of their mantras is this, they're absolutely sure there are no absolutes And that's quite an absolute statement, is it not? (laughs) Jesus is the only way. One door. The text makes the claim. It makes it clearly, and it's a claim that we've got to reckon with personally. 
Have we come to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son? Have we entered through the door rather than climbing over the fence as Jesus describes in this passage, coming in like some other way? Have we actually come through him? We have to wrestle with that. And then we have to wrestle with how to share this with other people because our culture, I'm telling you, is drowning in a sea of subjectivity. You know, it's like you got your truth, I got my truth. It's like there's no objective truth anymore. But the first truth that I wanted to share today is that Jesus is the only way to God, according to Scripture. Truth number two, the privileges we receive when we enter through him. I mean, there are certain like privileges that we receive when we enter through Christ. I mean, everyone who comes through Christ as the door or the gate receives certain things. And I think they're listed in the passage. Um, First of all, it says that he will be saved. I mean, look at John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. And so the first thing, he will be saved. Now, that word saved, it's an important word. We use that word a lot, but maybe we don't always understand what we mean when we say that word. I think a lot of people, when they say, you know, I was saved when I was like five years old, essentially what they mean is this. You know, I made a profession of faith when I was five years old. I was converted to Christianity when I was five years old. But really, you know, think about it. The logical question to ask anytime somebody says, I was saved, is we should say, saved from what? What is it do you think you're saved from? What do we mean when we say we're saved? What does that word mean in Scripture? I think if you look at this word in the rest of the Gospel of John, and it's used about a half dozen times, it becomes pretty clear that this word means to be saved from condemnation. It means to be saved from judgment. Just let me give you one of the passages, John chapter 3, 16 to 18. Many of you will know this verse, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Mark down that word there, perish, but have everlasting life. And read on in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So do you see it? There's this contrast from being condemned to being saved. From perishing to having eternal life. And then it says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there again, you have this exclusive claim of truth. And it's only through Christ that you escape condemnation. But when we're talking about someone being saved, I mean, this is what we mean. We mean that we are saved from perishing, that we are saved from condemnation. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the judgment of God on our sins. We are saved from an everlasting hell, and that's what we're saved from. We're saved from the condemnation of God. Now, of course, saved, when you look at it in like the broader biblical context, it has three dimensions. I think we talked about this confirmation morning. We could talk about being saved in the past tense, in the present tense, and in the future tense. We're saved in the past tense in the sense that we're justified, that we've been saved from the penalty of sin, that our sins are forgiven, that we're right with God. I have been saved, that's past tense, from the penalty of sin, you know, justified, just as if I've never sinned, justification. And then we can also say that I am being saved in the present tense. 
that we are progressively coming to understand the riches of salvation, that we are growing in our experience of God's grace, and we are being delivered progressively from the power of sin operating in our lives. We are overcoming sinful habits and sinful patterns and those kinds of things, and that's called sanctification. So I am being saved right now from the power of sin. And then we're going to be saved. We will be saved in the future tense when Jesus Christ returns. When the wrath of God is finally and fully unleashed on the sins of the unrepentant human beings, we're going to be saved from that. We won't experience the wrath of God in the future. So in that sense, salvation that we're waiting for is still in the future. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. So I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification, past tense. I am being saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification, present tense. And I will be saved from the very presence of sin, and that is glorification. So we're saved from condemnation. How is it that we're saved? We're saved through substitution. We're saved through substitution. What that means is this. We're saved through somebody else taking our place. In fact, just jump ahead of verse, something that we're going to look at in more detail next week, John chapter 10, verse 11, we get this sense of substitution when Jesus says, you know, I am the good shepherd. Uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is how you get saved. You get saved by Christ taking your place. Essentially what that means is that when Jesus hung on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life with all of its sin so that he could treat me as if I had lived, lived Jesus' life with all of its obedience and righteousness. You know, there's an old hymn. It's in uh, our hymn book, which you don't have right now, but it's on page 165. Philip Bliss wrote it, and it's Hallelujah, What a Savior. And the words of the second stanza go like this. Bearing shame, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's substitution. In my place, condemned, he stood. He was hanging on my cross. He stood in my place. I was the sinner. I was on death row. I was the one with all these crimes and sins to my credit. I was the one deserving of condemnation. He stood in my place, and in doing so, he secured my pardon. He secured my justification. He secured my freedom and my release. So salvation, the removal of this judgment, this combination, this condemnation, escaping from perishing, escaping from the wrath of God, all of that comes through Christ. Jesus said, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Ah, but there's more. That's not all of the Christian life. There's more to it than that. Notice that Jesus also says in verse 9, he will go in and out. He will go in, he will go out, and he'll find pasture. Let's just take one of those at a time. It says he will go in. What does that mean? So I think if we look at Scripture again kind of broadly, it becomes really clear that Jesus is not only your entry point 
into salvation. Jesus is our entry point into every good thing that God ever gives us. Every good gift of grace, every blessing of salvation, every good thing that God ever gives us, he gives us through Christ, right? I mean, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 talks about how we have received every spiritual blessing in him, in him. And we get it in Christ, right? Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, talks about how in Christ, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 16, we read how Jesus is full of grace and truth, and out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. All of the fullness that we get, all of the grace that we get, all the good that we get, we get it from Jesus. So, going in means going deeper in everything God has for us in Christ. And Jesus is the entry point, everything you need in your Christian life, you get through Christ. If you need more peace, you get it from Christ. If you need more holiness, you get it from Christ. If you need to grow and mature in your faith, you get it from Christ. You go through Christ to the Father, and it's only in him and through him that we go deeper with God. Quote from Charles Spurgeon, uh, a great preacher from days gone by in the 1800s, and listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He that enters in by the door shall be saved, and he shall go in. And if you know what this means, go in. Go in farther. Go in more constantly. Do not stop where you are, but go in till you have a little more. If you love Christ, come nearer to him and nearer and nearer still. But if you want to get into anything that is divine, you must get it through Christ. Oh, you who open your Bibles and want to understand the text, the way to get into the meaning of a text is through the door, comma, Christ. Oh, you who wait to get more holiness, come through the door. The way to holiness is not through Moses, it's through Christ. Oh, you who would have closer communion with your heavenly Father, the way to come in is not through your own efforts, but through Christ. You came to Christ at first to get salvation. You must come to Christ still to get sanctification. Never look for another door, for there is but one, and that one door will let you into life, love, peace, knowledge, and sanctification. It will let you into heaven. Christ is the master key of all the rooms in the palace of mercy. And if you get Christ, you shall go in. Nothing shall keep you out of the secret chambers. You shall go in in God's name through Christ the door. End of quote. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. Amen. So, whatever you need this morning, go through Christ. Go in through him. Christ is your entry point. And to all that the Father has to give you, all the blessings that we could ever desire or need, we get through Christ. If anyone enters through me, Jesus said, he will be saved, he will go in, and he will go out. He will go out. What does that mean? He will go out. A sheep obviously goes in and out of a sheepfold through a gate, and Jesus says, I'm that gate, and anyone who goes in and out comes through me. But it certainly doesn't mean like going out of salvation, to go out doesn't mean to go out like of the church in the sense of, you know, leaving the body of Christ. What does it mean to go out? I think it means you go out into the world. 
You go out into your daily life. You go out into everything you do in life through Christ. And when you're leaving for work in the morning, you go out to your daily business. You know, go through Christ. In other words, meet with him first. Seek him first. Know him first. Go with Christ on your mind and in your heart. And when you go out into the trials of life, you're going through Christ. Christ is your entry point. And when you go fight your sin, you're going through Christ. And in all the work that you do for him, you go through Christ. In other words... The idea here seems to be that, in, that, that, that Christ is not only your entry point into a relationship with the Father, but that it is through Christ, it's through Christ that we engage in everything. You know, when we come to Christ, we get the Holy Spirit of God, that's the presence of Jesus in our lives, and it's like we are carriers of the presence of God, and when you go into a room, you should make a difference, not because you're so great, but because Christ is living in you. We are to live our lives so that they are so Christ-centered that in everything we do, we're thinking of it in relationship to Jesus Christ. Our first core value here at Calvary is Christ-centered ministry. We wrote down the foundation of our church and ministry is a relationship with and a love for Jesus Christ. He will go in and he will go out. And then at the end of the verse, it says he will find pasture. This is probably, of course, an allusion to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. What is that? It's a promise of provision. It's a promise of nourishment. It's a promise of rest. It's a promise of restoration, of refreshment. In Christ, in other words, who gives us what our souls need to keep us strong, to help us grow, to help us become healthy. It's Christ that we give, get life. And so John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus comes to nourish us and to fill us and to give us an abundant life. Now, what does that mean? Life and have it more abundantly. Well, I don't think it means uh, that we will never have any trouble now that we know Jesus. Why? Because Scripture interprets Scripture, right? John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. John chapter 16, verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. You'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus nowhere promises exemption from suffering for the Christian. If you think life is all roses and no thorns, you're going to be woefully disappointed because sooner or later, you're going to lose everything. And I don't know if you've reckoned with that or not. I know some of you uh, older folks like me You know, once you turn 40 or uh, 45, something does happen when you suddenly start to realize that half of your life is kind of behind you and you're starting to look at everything from the rearview mirror, right? And that up ahead are all kinds of like trials maybe and health problems and aging parents and and trials uh, in in all kinds of ways and you realize that's coming and if you think about it uh, long enough, you're going to realize that by the end of your life, you're going to lose everything. Uh, You may lose it all at once by dying. You may lose it slowly by losing your health. And I'm not making a bad confession here. I'm just telling you the truth. Losing losing your family, losing your friends, and so on. You're going to lose everything. I mean, that's just 
the reality. And I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just trying to say, grasp reality. Life is fragile. Life is brief. And it's going to be going really, really quickly. And Jesus doesn't promise an exemption from suffering for the Christian. So what is it that he means when he says that you can have a life and you can have it more abundantly? This is what I think he means. I think he means that, we'll be, that he will be so present with us through all of that hardship and all that trial that there can be real joy and real peace and real satisfaction, kind of an abiding calmness of heart and spirit throughout it all. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal today or God doesn't deliver today. Of course not, because he does. We've seen miracles, but I want a relationship with Jesus like that. Suffering's going to happen. Trials are going to happen. Aging is going to happen. Loss is going to happen. Changes of season or places are going to happen. What do you have to fall back on? What are you depending on for your happiness? Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. What kind of life is that? It's a life that only he can give. And it's a life that is untouched by the trials and tribulations and the changes and the circumstances of this mortal life. How do you get it? You get it through Jesus. Anyone who enters through this gate will be saved. He will go in and out and he will find pasture, life, and life abundantly. When we enter a relationship with God through the doorway of Jesus Christ, we experience abundant life, and that word abundant means far more than we needed. It means bountiful. It means generous, rich, kind of like an overflowing cup. Exactly what is abundant about the Christian life? Well, Trace the word through the Bible. Do your own word study. Find a concordance. Look up the word. I did. Here's what I found. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Nehemiah 9, 17, abundant in kindness. Psalm 37, 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption. Psalm 132, verse 15, I will abundantly bless. Isaiah 55, 7, he will abundantly pardon. Romans 5, 17, abundance of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 2, the abundance of their joy. And then Ephesians 3, 20, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And then Titus 3, 5, and 6, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly. Even with all of our most advanced mathematical equipment, we could never calculate the riches that dazzle us when we walk through the doorway of Jesus Christ into this storehouse of God's abundant life. We have abundant, far more than we deserve, far more than enough mercy and kindness and peace and blessing and pardon and grace and joy and answered prayer and spiritual resources through the Holy Spirit. Oh, don't miss the door. Which leads us to truth number three. How do you enter? How to enter through this door? And it's really clear. You know, Jesus is the door and there are certain privileges that he gives to those who enter through him. But you have to enter, right? Right? Verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, 
he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. I mean, there's a big difference between seeing a door and going through a door. There's a big difference between knowing what a door is and how it functions and then actually, you know, walking through that doorway. There's a big difference between just knowing the facts about Jesus and then actually trusting Jesus, depending on Jesus, relying on Jesus. You know, what Jesus is saying here is that you have to enter. Uh, You actually have to go through. You actually have to come to the Father through him. And what does that mean? It means to trust him. It means to believe on him. It means to depend on him. It means that you're looking to Christ. You're consciously looking to Christ to be the one who gives you access to God and forgiveness. Somebody said the only way to go to God is with Christ in your arms. Every time you go to God, you go with Christ in your arms. You're holding on to Christ, and that's what it means to enter through him. Go clinging to Christ with Christ in your arms. It's it's to go trusting in him, recognizing that it's only through him that you have access to God, that you got forgiveness. There's a wonderful story about this old gentleman and his son who loved art. And they loved to collect art, and they were building this collection together, and he was a very wealthy man, and so... He had money to spend, and he and his son would travel around the, the country and actually around the world just purchasing these rare portraits and paintings and wonderful masterpieces. And they had things like Picassos and Van Goghs and Monets and this uh, amazing collection of art. And of course, the joy of his father, this father, was that he did this with his son. He was a widower, and this was his only son, and he loved his son so much, and he loved this thing that they shared together, and they were buying these pieces of art together, and then one of the wars happened, and his son enlisted and went off to fight overseas, and day after day, this old man prays, and he's kind of like holding his breath, and he's, he's waiting for the news, and he's hoping that his son will come back, and then one day, there's a knock on the door, and he gets the telegram. And he finds out that, that his son uh, has died in the service. And of course, he's just brokenhearted. And then on Christmas morning, uh, there's another knock on the door, and it's a soldier at the door who has a package in his hands. And when the old man unwraps it, it's a portrait that was painted of his son. And now, it's not a, a masterpiece, and it's certainly not the best portrait that's ever been done in the history of the world, but... For the old man, it became his pride and his joy. It's a striking resemblance or likeness of his son. And he hangs it over the mantle of his fireplace. And this is the centerpiece, really, of his collection. And from then on, even as this old man grieves the loss of his son, he takes great delight in the portrait of his son. Finally, the old man grows ill and he passes away. And when he did... The art world was extremely interested in finally getting access to this rare collection of paintings. And so an auction was held. And, but the first painting up for the auction is the painting or the portrait of the sun. And nobody's really interested. And the auctioneer tries to sell it like for a hundred bucks. And no one would, would bid. You know, the sun, the sun. Who will take the sun, said the auctioneer. Finally, a neighbor of the old man says, I'll bid $50 on this piece. I mean, nobody else will take it. And he knew the family, and so he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bid $50 on this piece. And so he does, and 
The gavel falls. It's sold. Now everybody's ready for the real auction. The real pieces of art. To their shock and dismay and surprise, the auctioneer says, the auction's over. The proceedings are done. And people's mouths were wide open in disbelief. They're asking, you know, why? What do you mean it's over? And this is what the auctioneer says. It's very simple. According to the will, whoever gets the son gets all. And that's what John wrote about in his epistle, right? This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Listen, if you have Jesus, you get access to everything else. Whoever gets the son gets all. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you have Jesus, you have salvation. If you have Jesus, you have protection. If you have Jesus, you have pasture. If you have Jesus, you have satisfaction. If you have Jesus, you have nurture and nourishment. If you have Jesus, you have salvation, healing, deliverance. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because they're given to us in Christ. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace, but you get it through Christ. So, have you entered through the door? Do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Have you believed in the Son? Are you depending on Him? Are you trusting in Him? Do you know Him? Do you have access to God through Jesus Christ? If that's not true of you this morning, it can be true. It can be true right now if you just bow in simple faith and in prayer and ask God to receive you for Christ's sake and begin a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do you have the Son? You know, one door and only one. And yet its sides are two, inside and outside. Which side are you? One door and only one. And yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? God told Noah to build an ark. Because God was going to destroy the world. There was so much wickedness. So it took Noah about 120 years to build the ark. And God said, you need to put a door. A door on the side of the ark. And so Noah brought all the animals in. Or God did. And Noah brought his family in. And the Bible says that God shut the door. And in the New Testament, it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus said, I'm the door. Could that Old Testament picture of a door on the ark be a prophetic picture of Jesus? I want to tell you that the door is still open. He hasn't shut the door yet. But I would go through if you haven't. I would go through the door. And I would not be like Judas who came up and kissed the door to heaven, and he went to hell. So if you're not sure today, you can pray with me right now. I'm gonna pray. And you can just agree with me in your heart before we sing the closing hymn. You can just say something like this, God, you know, I I know, I'm so sorry. Lord, uh, I don't wanna kiss the door and go to hell. Just play games with you. 
I'm so sorry that I've broken every commandment, every one, whether literally or metaphorically. I have broken your law. Your law convicts me of sin. I have not loved you, God, with all my heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. And I am so sorry. And I'm so thankful, God, that you, you have a plan for me. You have a plan for the world. You sent your one and only son. And Jesus said, you're the door, and I want to go through you today. I want to recognize your life, your death, your burial, and your resurrection, that you did it for me. You died in my place. Thank you, Jesus, for being the door. And so I say, please, come in to my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we're so thankful that you sent Jesus to be the door. That we can enter through him. And we can go in and out and we can find pasture. Jesus, you said the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So Father, I just pray that you would seal any commitments that have been made today that you would just manifest your presence in the lives of each one so that wherever we go, we remember we're taking you with us and that we can make a difference only because you live your life in us and through us to do your will. Thank you. You get the glory, not us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.